as you know, we've been studying the Gnostic Gospels, and I have to say something. I have to say something about this subject. You know, there's some people have, you know, with a good heart, given me a warning. Oh, Sean, you're talking about those heretical texts, the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, And I I usually, I actually am always somebody who takes things kindly. I take it with grace. Um, But I want to warn you. I want to warn those who are quick to call something heretical. That is the lowest form of argument to just say, oh, that's heresy. You know, I've, I've had theological debates with, on every category, on every subject. Nobody has ever actually complained about something I've preached before. So now when I finally bring up a subject that I came across through my studies in psychoanalysis, uh, now we're talking about something that nobody wants me to talk about, or some people don't. Some people are loving it. And I get all these warnings, like, did you know this and did you know that? Um, I want to prove to you that I do know what I'm talking about. And so before next time, before you, somebody warns me, I want to warn you that Harvard scholars, PhDs, anthropologists, sociologists, religion scholars, academics of all kinds have done new research on the works that were discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945. And before that date, all we had about what Gnostics were, whether docetists, whether dualists, whether having a negative view of the world, all of the scholars have undone that, that thinking. It is now mainstream in the academic world that none of those things that say N.T. Wright or some other scholar, something you heard uh, from Irenaeus or Tertullian, all of those things, what we had before 1945 were the biased writings of people who saw the Valentinian Gnostics as competitors. If you and I, if, if I got into a debate with a Pentecostal as a Congregationalist, we would have so many disagreements, but I, the last thing I would ever call them was a heretic. We learned last week that the word heretic, heresies, comes from the word heresies in Greek, which means school of thought. So the Gospel of Matthew is a school of thought. That's why the, all the Gospels are different. They're schools of thought around Jesus. So they would have called them heresies. They would have called them heresies. But what the Catholic Church did early on, what the early church fathers did, was orthodoxy didn't come first. There was proto-orthodoxy. There was loose-knitted ideas around Jesus. Then orthodoxy comes. So let's remove that idea that before that there was some pure form of Orthodox Christianity that somebody then uh, distorted. What came first was the Valentinians. The Council of Nicaea was, was, uh, took place in the 4th century. We are reading 2nd century texts. And when you read a 2nd century text, 
What you really are reading is what somebody finally wrote down. It was already being discussed orally. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, there's two versions of the Torah. There's the written Torah, which we have a small amount of, actually, and then there's the Mishnah, which is the oral Torah, which is incredibly long, incredibly broad, and will introduce you to stories about Moses and Abraham and the Garden of Eden that you would have never even imagined, but it's considered to be canon. We have to move away from the idea that when we, just because we know a word, and that word is heretic, that's like calling somebody a name and not hearing their argument. What we're doing today is we're looking for the, at the text ourselves. And I'm not looking at some, you know, out, out there writer. I don't read those types of people. I read scholars, people who have PhDs, people who read Greek and Coptic, Hebrew, German, Latin. These are not fools. They know exactly what they're saying. And this book doesn't just give you her idea. She goes across through all of the literature on this subject and gives you summaries and analysis of what it all is. And the conclusion of this book, spoiler alert, the word Gnostic should not be used anymore. It's such, just such a miss, too much baggage on it. So that's why I think it's important. Because if we, if we shouldn't be used any, anymore, what we're really looking at when we look at Valentinian Christianity, and you can get this book here. Look, I sell books now, Ash, look. If you get this book, Valentinian Christianity, who has an endorsement on the back from Elaine Pagels, the Harrington Spear Payne Foundation Professor of Religion at Princeton University, ever heard of it? and Matthew Novinson, Senior Lecturer in New Testament and Christian Origins at the University of Edinburgh. That's the kind. This book, Karen King, written by a Harvard, the, the, the Wynn Professor of Ecclesiastical History at the Divinity School, Harvard University. These are the kind of resources I'm using. I'm not using the resources of, say, you know, Brian Houston or uh, Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen. Those are not scholars. Joyce Meyer is not a scholar. She is somebody who gives, she's actually, the church fathers would consider all the people I just named the greatest heretics of all. So let's just get, let's just kind of be situated in the right place here. We are studying early Christianity. That's what we're looking at. And I think if we got our hands on the thoughts and opinions, who are we more like as a culture? The Jewish people, Eastern people, or like the Greeks and Romans? We're more like, if you go to, go to Washington, D.C., you would think that you're in the, you know, in, the, in the middle of Athens itself. Right? We are more like the Greeks and Romans. And did you know that Valentinian Christianity is a Hellenized type of Christianity? So this is going to make sense. When I say Jesus was sacrificed, his blood poured out for you, does that, do you read that story to your kids? No, because they didn't grow up like that. But if I teach you that Jesus is like the tree of life and his 
his knowledge pours into, into our minds and that knowledge can grow up in you like a mustard seed, that's a good night story I'd read to my kids. That's the, that's the kind of work. That's why I see the value in this. We're looking at a Greek, Egyptian type of Christianity. And I think if we just give it a chance and stop commenting, this is heresy, then I could literally say, you're heresy. See how that works? You're a heretic. No, you're a heretic. Let's just listen. Then we'll have a conversation. Then we might learn something. I love hearing feedback, but not uh, feedback that doesn't contribute to anything. So last week, I had to give a preface into Gnostic, Valentinian Christianity, which really, I mean, even Karen King would say it's not really Gnostic. Be, not by what, because we assign labels to it. So let's dive in today. Open your mind, open your heart a little bit, let the Holy Spirit in, and let's see what this all has to say for us in 2021. Are you a dreamer? Not like, do you have a dream about your future? That is a hope. That's not a dream. A dream is something you have when you're sleeping. It is when you let your ego, that's what happens when you go to sleep. Your ego drifts away, your conscious self, and your unconscious self becomes active. Your brain is still active, but your ego is no longer the governor. It is not acting by the rules of this external world. You can have multiple dreams at night. You all know this. You know, one time uh, I'm a baseball player over here. The next I'm four years old and driving a car and scared out of my mind. That's how dreams are. You can have multiple dreams in one night. And in our dreams, time and space are absent. It could feel like it's happening so fast. It could feel like it's happening for hours. I once had a dream that I went to work and I woke up and I had to go to work and I said I was just there. That's the power of dreams. They feel so real. They feel like a, a real, but they also feel like there's a fog. And it feels like, we're, but we're really experiencing something. It's tangible. And whose image are we made in, according to the scripture? I heard a comedian once say, isn't it funny how people come up to you and, and they're so surprised They'll say, oh, your, your kids look just like you, just like the parents. And the, the comedian says, of course they look like their mother and parents, father. He says, the real, it would be more surprising if they didn't look like them. Of course they look like their parents. They were made in their parents' image. And so humanity is created by the one who must dream. For if we dream... That one dreams. If we rest, surely the divine rests. He created the Sabbath, right? If we move, and then there were six days, then God moves. If we're wonderfully made, it is because we are from the wonderful one. The gospel of truth 
Here's a correction. The gospel of truth is not a gospel, but rather it is a sermon, one of the earliest sermons you might be hearing today, one of the earliest sermons on the gospels. You know, when I preach, I use the gospels. Just like you're hearing me today, right? I'm doing a reflection. Today I am presenting this reflection on the gospel of truth, and the gospel of truth presents an interpretation on the gospel themselves. So this person's not making up another gospel to read. This person's using the gospels to write his sermon back then. And I think it's refreshing to hear. It's one of the earliest forms of interpretation we have on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Today, with all pastors attending seminaries that are immersed in the traditional school of thought, the traditional heresy, the traditional school of thought we received from the early church fathers, pastors know what I'm saying when I say this. Each week we try to present something new, but in reality, and here's the pastor's existential dilemma, it's virtually impossible to give you all something new. We're bound by one dominant school of thought that ruthlessly and forcibly assumed its position. Adjectives that should not be associated with goodness and holiness, in my opinion at least. Here is what every sermon will say to you in some way. Here is what you and I have been bound by and taught to believe You've heard it, in, heard it as the Nicene Creed, but you may not you know, think of it often. You may not know it, so let me quickly go over it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead on his white horse, sword in hand, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. I'm almost done. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic church and apostolic church. Only one bishop can make the rules, and only those who we approve as teachers can be teachers. We acknowledge one baptism, and if you don't have that baptism, you will not receive the forgiveness of sins. So all your friends who have not been baptized in the name of Jesus, we could pray for them. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. These are the terms and conditions you have checked as Christians. You may have never read them, just like 
I never read the terms and conditions for most anything. But there you have it. These are the terms and conditions for Christianity. It is so much Christianity that what we do when we make, say, a website, and I've made websites for churches, all we do when we, in the About Us section, here's, here's how thoughtful this part is, copy, paste. We just go along with it as we've gone along, along with for so long. No updated language, just leave it the way it is. But let me ask you, let's be honest, let's be real honest here. Because we're in church, we should be honest. Have you agreed to this? Have you ever questioned this? Well, that would require us to read it, right? Would you agree? Would you agree that when I say, what's it mean for you to be a Christian? You, you, this is what you think of, this creed. This creed was created to make sure. It wasn't made for your spiritual development. It was made to make sure that you fell in line with the teaching of the church. That's the impetus of why it was made. My point is not to refute this, because I agree with everything. Rather, it's to stop allowing this practice of blindly agreeing to what ancient religious men decided that you and I in 2021 should believe when reading the scriptures and how we should go about our spiritual living. Because people are leaving the church. And they just have the courage to say, I, wanna, I don't want to have to read this creed. I want to come to understand this for myself. And I've come to understand. If you were to ask me a creed, I bet to write a creed just of my own understanding, I bet it would line up just pretty much with that. But you don't learn anything when somebody tells you the answer. We have so many new ways of understanding the Bible. And this should not be the fence. These creeds. It should not be the fence by which we're bound to read. I may, like I said, I may end up agreeing with it all. I may agree with it only in part, which is probably what most people really believe. But I will not agree with it simply because some ancient men said this. And this is what they said. This was their goal. That when I read, no matter what the scriptures say to me, no matter what the Holy Spirit directly speaks to me, it always has to fall within the terms and the conditions. And I do. I do believe that. I, I wager that Christendom is suffering today because we're consciously or unconsciously held captive to an ancient form of Christian interpretation that is so extremely outdated and is becoming more and more incapable of providing us with the deep and personal spiritual connection to God. Today we will read a text that was written before the early church bishops told us what we can and cannot think on our own. You know Alexandria? That 
you might have heard the library was burned down. It was like, it was like the place to be, the place to study. The guy who wrote this sermon, he went to that school. He's no slouch. We're going to read a free thinker's interpretation of the Gospels before people like, I won't even name them, but this is how, you know how some bishops acted toward other bishops? If they disagreed, they would slap them across the face. Is that church? No, that's pride. And that was a factor in what got in and what didn't get into this holy book. We're going to read a free thinker's interpretation of the Gospels. And by default, hearing something new will be a breath of fresh air. This is the context for today's message, and we learned what context was last week. You could just go back and watch it, because that took a whole sermon to explain. But this is why you have not heard of this gospel of truth, but you'll hear it now. I may be the first one ever to present it in any church since its discovery in 1945. The UCC, the United Church of Christ, is the church first, so let's continue in this tradition. For the next month or so, let us not blindly sign the terms and conditions of Christianity. How boring has that been? Ask your kids, they'll tell you. Because this type of Christianity, where you get to think on your own and interact with the scripture, and rephrase it in a way that makes sense to you? Huh. It's going to feel good. Let us hear a sermon from a Valentinian Christian. And for all those worried about apostolic succession, like, is, where does Valentinus get off uh, writing on his interpretation of the scriptures? Well, you might have not heard of somebody named Theotis. But you surely have heard of Theotis's teacher. His name was Paul. In this sermon called The Gospel of Truth, we hear of a dream. So, look, if you buy this book, this one has the, just to show you, no slouch, this has the Coptic from the actual stuff we found, uh, or, or the Greek, and then next to it, it has the translation. I do recommend just getting this, the Gnostic Bible that has the Gospel of Truth in it. But if you were to open up the Gospel of Truth, you'd read a story that begins just like this. And I'm going to give you a summary of it in hopes that you will read it for yourself so that when you read it for yourself, you will say, ah, Sean gave me some context, gave me some background. So in this sermon called The Gospel of Truth, we hear of a dream. A dream. A dream that exists within the fullness. The fullness is God. That's what the fullness is. In the dream of God, there is a thought. Picture God like a, like a mind, like an intellect. 
And in the dream of God, in the mind of God, there is a thought, a thought called error. You have dark dreams. I've had, I have dark dreams, dark imaginations. Right? We always wonder, why did God create good and evil? See, what Valentinus does is he's going to use the imagery of dreams. That in the vast expanse of God's mind, God had a dream. And in this dream, just like in our dreams, something dark was imagined. You would never act out your dark imagination, your dark dream. But just as we have complex uh, dreams because we're complex beings, how much more is God complex? And so God has complex dreams when he rests. The gospel of truth will reimagine Genesis. Remember, they, the Greeks didn't grow up with the Torah. So they had their own stories, and what Valentinus had, had the innovation to do, the genius to do, was just reimagine the Genesis story according to his context. The gospel of truth will reimagine Genesis for us. I think it's going to help us too. Valentinus was extremely well-versed in the scriptures. He was a Christian, almost became the bishop of Rome. He wrote a lot of works, I bet people don't know this, the Valentinian school of thought were among the first to write commentaries for the early Christian community of the second century. Why do you think so? Because if you don't have a Hebrew background, you're going to need some Greek-minded or Eastern-minded people to translate the the. The Torah is big. Look how big this book is to make sense of it. The New Testament's small. And guess what? They didn't really even have the New Testament. Most people didn't even have that. All they had was these, were these preachers preaching. And so they had to give some context. They said, you remember David? Everybody in the Greek audience would say, no. Remember in Genesis, the garden? No, I don't remember that because I did not grow up with so Valentinus, he's going to reimagine and retell the story. You know, I like to view Valentinus as the kind of like the Christian version of Alexander Hamilton, writing and writing and working and working like his spiritual grandfather. Remember, who's his spiritual grandfather? The Apostle Paul. If you want to fact check that, it's Paul teaches Theodos, and Theodos is said to have taught Valentinus. That was his apostolic succession, just for all those people who would like to have a debate with me later. So he wanted to contextualize the Christian narrative to his Gentile, non-Jewish Jesus followers. And he imagined human beings as being created from the great mind of God. 
And in this mind, a dream played itself out as dreams like to do. It was a world without God. In this dream, a world that did not have the knowledge or the full knowledge of the great and divine one. Instead, it was a world formed by error. A world created, created by the mind of the perfect God. But in this dream, error was the theme, was the genre. And its inhabitants, those who lived in this dream of errors, did not know from which they came. In this dream of God's, error formed this created material world. The world you and I exist in. Like the universe is vast and incomprehensible, so too the mind of God. There are places of light, places of darkness, and everything in between. The first section of the Valentinian homily sets the stage for why good and evil exists at the same time in a world that comes from the perfect mind of God. This dream we exist in within the mind of God creates a sort of fog. Psalm 103 states that we all are like blades of grass. Here for a moment, gone the next. We're part of this dream, this dream where we have forgotten where we came from. This is why we all live in a type of existential crisis, wondering, what is my life? What am I to do with my days? Where have I come from? Where the heck am I going? Why would God ever create you like that? Because you ate a fruit? Valentinus drops a little imagination into this bucket. He gives us a myth, a story, a symbolic narrative, just like Genesis is also a symbolic narrative created by the Hebrew people to help them understand the nature of this existence. We are born within this dream from the mind of God. But in this dream, error is the one who formed us. Error is afraid we, who are connected to the mind of God, may awaken and remember that we're not under error's rules. And so error does its best to help us forget, to lead us into temptations that make us believe we are mortal, to make us worry that we are like blades of grass, destined to wither away into nothingness. That's a lie. But that's the grand narrative we all fear. You can read the Old Testament and see our spiritual ancestors trying to remember God. You don't even have to look just to the, to the Jewish religion. Every culture. Do you know they found that every culture has religion? Is that a coincidence? Or maybe it's something innate. In all world religions, 
they wrestle to understand the divine as if they're lost in a dream trying to catch a memory. But error has made us forget, and so we create half-truths, material rules that state we must somehow please an intolerant and angry God. Does this sound like a God you want to be with? Where all we perceive him as is this, don't do this and don't do that. What great depth that God has. (laughs) In our forgetfulness that we are divine ourselves, for we're from the mind of God, we suffer ignorance. That's the, the fruit of error. Ignorance. We cannot fully see the truth. And so in this confusing dream, holiness becomes defined by how good you can abide by the laws, the rules, and regulations. If you read the Gospel of John, chapter 1, tell me, tell me that this does not sound like what I am describing when I describe Valentinus's myth. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. How could Jesus be in the world and not? Unless we're playing by the rules of dreams. And though the world was made through him, how could you not know that Jesus made the world and still be angry with him? Unless you were in the fog of a dream. A nightmare, as it turns out. The world did not even recognize Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Back in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the relationship to God was master-slave. How do they call God? Adonai, Lord, Lord, they bow. I wish my children called me Lord and bowed. They don't. They call me dad and they do whatever they want to me because I love them. That's what, that's what Jesus came. He came to say, whoever told you that God is, your, is the master? God is your father. He loves you. That's why Jesus said, tell you don't tell these people they're unclean and that God doesn't like them. They're the children of God. They could do whatever they want. God would love them endlessly, unconditionally. For they are not children born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we, gave, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of the fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Do you hear that? Jesus came to give us grace that was already given. But what happened was we forgot. And the people in charge took it away from us. 
For the law was given through Moses. Listen, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Back to Valentinus' sermon. Trapped in this forgetful dream called life, we suffer from ignorance and darkness clouded by error. But listen to Valentinus here. In the opening paragraph from his sermon called The Gospel of Truth, it says this, The good news of truth is a joy for those who have received grace from the Father of truth to know him by the power of the word who has come forth from the fullness, this one who is in the thought and mind of the Father, the one called Savior. His name is called Savior because that is the task he will, has come to accomplish. Salvation, not for sins. Salvation for those who have become ignorant forgotten who their father is. The name of the gospel is the appearance of hope, discovery for those who search for him. Isn't that refreshing to hear? The name of the gospel is the appearance of hope, the word who has come forth from the fullness, the one who is in the thought and mind of God, the one called Savior who has come to bring salvation for those who have become ignorant of the Father. Doesn't this sound like good news? Doesn't it remind you of what all in the religious in people, gurus, all of them, religious scholars say? Doesn't it sound like enlightenment to have a knowledge of God? We are all truly divine, pure, good, and holy, loved by God who sends his Son to remind us of this, not to call us out as evil and wicked. Christ steps into the stream. Remember, Christ only got mad at one group of people, the religious leaders and scholars who perpetuated this lie that we are originally evil. That's what error would have us believe. Christ steps into this dream, into our reality, to turn it from a type of bad dream into one where we do fade away, but our memory reminds us that we will not truly fade away. That we belong to and from the divine God who is eternal. If you would rather keep the good news handed down in the terms and conditions, here's, here's what it is. Here's my most honest summary of it, that God was so angry, so disgusted with us that he would have killed us all, just like he did in the flood. But instead, instead of killing us, here's the solution. God murders his son in our place through a blood sacrificial atonement. 
I, I don't even know how that got titled, the good news. But that is what the good news for those ancient religious men were. It's what they handed down to us, bound us up in. I don't think that sounds like good news at all. In fact, that sounds more like a nightmare. I think they were trying so hard to fit the gospel in with the Old Testament, with all its laws, sacrifices, and intolerances. They, ended, they attempted to craft a grand meta-narrative. I, I guess I could see that. But it ended up continuing the old tradition of having to fear, fear. Francis Chan teaches this in a lesson, that the first thing that you should do with God, your loving, holy Father, is fear him. I have a son coming into the world. I hope He's not so afraid of me. I would love him no matter what. As the Gospel of John states, the law and its condemnation, Paul writes about this. Remember, Paul taught Theodos, who taught Valentinus. This all lines up with what Paul writes. That the law and its condemnation came from Moses, who purely sought to find God, but was error got in the way. The law came from Moses, but the Savior, Christ Jesus, who steps into this dream, where do you think he came from? <laughs> where was he? On a planet? Where? in the dream. God's not in the dream. We are from God's imagination. God is not from our imagination. Jesus comes into this world, into the dream, and gives us grace, which means mercy. God loves you, no matter what. No matter what. Come to give you truth. That's bad news. The good news is, here's the truth. This is the good news. Valentinus would have taught his fellow Christians. If you went to their church, and they went to church all together until the, the bishops and religious leaders that followed in the tradition of the religious leaders and scholars of Jesus' day, this is what you would have heard. So we've set the stage for the next part of the story. Today we learn that we live in a kind of dream that exists within the mind of the divine fullness, in the mind of God. It was a type of bad dream where error ruled, and error created us in the image of the divine, but left us to forget our divine origins. Therefore, to snap us out of this delusion, 
A Savior is needed. A Savior who is able to come into our world and remember from where he came. A Savior who is willing to enter into the dream of errors, into our reality, and love us enough to endure this world and all its folly, a world where he might be rejected and despised. But to those who have heard and those who can understand, with eyes to see and ears to hear his voice will remind them of their divinity, of their origin in the true and holy God who, when fully seen, what happens when we have the truth? Error is gone. With knowledge and wisdom in his hand, with knowledge and wisdom in his hands. Christ plants the mustard seed of the good news into our hearts. Truth to all who are able to awaken out of this dream and see who they truly are, where they come from, and to where they will return. Next week, we will learn more about Valentinus's understanding of Christ in part two on the gospel of truth. Till then, be blessed and live fully as the children of light.